Welcome in everyone. Uh, welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. And today um, I have my very good friend Lama Pema Drakpa with us to discuss his new book as well as to discuss just the Dharma in general. So um, Lama Pema Drakpa, welcome. Welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. Good to see you, Scott. Really nice. Yeah. Nice to see you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So we always we always get into really rich and sometimes extensive conversations. So I'm really curious what we get into today. Me too. Um, yeah, awesome. So I just wanted to introduce uh, Lama Pema Drakpa for a moment. So uh, I'm going to read his bio. So some of you listening to this or watching this on YouTube can uh, get a little familiar with him. So Lama Pema Drakpa has been a resident Dharma teacher at uh, Padma Samye Ling uh, since 2004, the main monastery and retreat center of the Padma Sambhava Buddhist Center, founded by the Nyingma Dzogchen Masters, Venerable Kenshin Paldan Sherab Rinpoche and Venerable Kempo Sewang Donggyal Rinpoche, uh, ordained as a Lama by the Venerable Kempo Rinpoche in 2010. Drakpa graduated with honors in philosophy and religious studies from New York University in 2002 and is a senior editor of over 25 books of Buddhist philosophy and meditation. Um, he regularly travels to lead uh, PBC events on traditional and contemporary Buddhist philosophy and meditation. And I would also add is um, the author of a really wonderful book we're going to discuss today. Um, so, you know, just to introduce that uh, for the listeners, uh, Drakpa, so, so you, you know, you just uh, completed and, and it's out now and people can, can uh, get it, uh, they can read it. Um, your first, you know, self-written book, right? Uh, it's the first yeah. one you've written, yeah, uh, called An Integral View of Tibetan Buddhism, Preserving Lineage Wisdom in the 24th, in the 21st century. So, um, yeah, and, and just, you know, getting a chance to look at this book, it's really an incredible uh, um, offering. So, thank you so much for just taking the time to create this thing and put it into the world. And also congratulations. Oh, thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm glad it's out there. It really does feel like an offering. Um, I've had tremendous fortune to receive so many teachings from just extraordinary Tibetan Buddhist masters and of course in the wild kind of giant information age that we're all a part of. There's so much wisdom out there. And so it's, just had the very, very privileged kind of special opportunity. And then, of course, Venerable Kenshin Paldenjer Rinpoche, Venerable Kempo Samandonia Rinpoche, my root teachers, and um, we've gotten to live and serve at their center here, upstate New York, for, I don't know, 20 years now. Um, and yeah, so it's like a little bit of a offering, also just a, a contemplation that's very active in my life, um, preserving this, this, you know, wisdom, lineage wisdom. Um, this living thrust of bodhicitta and goodness that we all have and the methods that help kind of like get us get in touch with that and activate that and shine it on for, for the benefit of ourselves and others. So, yeah, it's a Wonderful. rich exploration currently happening. Yeah, and we'll get into that. We'll, we'll get into some ideas, some, some perspectives on, on what lineage means to, to you and I. Um, some perspectives coming from, you know, the lineage itself, lineage masters and what they, you know, believe on that. And then also um, preservation, which I think, you know, that in itself um, is, is such a rich topic and, and sometimes a controversial one. So I think we can, you know, dig into it. Um, 
Before we do that, uh, just to introduce to the listeners out there. So, so what's what what I think is really key in this book is you're you're kind of merging or you're offering uh, both your extensive study and practice in um, traditional Tibetan Buddhism, mostly the Nyingma lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. And you're also extensive study and interest in in integral theory um, and different approaches to that. And so, the, you know, I'd love to hear from you, but to me, this book seems like you're trying to unify those two and or take, under, understand that in, integral is both a part of Dharma and we can also use integral coming from uh, more Western philosophy on how to approach Dharma So and life. So I, I'd love to just hear about that, how these two meet and kind of how you how those came about for you in your life, both both those paths for you and, and how it kind of uh, came out in this book, I guess, how it how it culminated in this book. Yeah, wonderful. So going back earlier on, I think I started really getting interested in um, questions like the meaning of life like when I was in middle school. <laughs> so I saw all these adults around and everyone seemed to be doing something different. And so the question kind of dawned on me in seventh, eighth grade, like, well, what am I going to do? And then that immediately kind of became like, well, how would I know what I'm going to do? Um, and so it was kind of a rich, active, like opening of that inquiry kind of a little earlier on. And then I had the good fortune to meet um, a teacher in high school who passed a Ken Wilber book to me, Brief, mm. Theory, of, Brief Theory of Everything. Um, and so that kind of like sparked that connection with uh, Ken Wilber, specifically his version of integral approach. Um, and then that's also when kind of meditation started popping on um, and then later in undergrad studies. But in general, I mean, I think I take a pretty broad view um, of what integral means. Um, and I, there's a lot of weeds and a lot of details. But in general, I think it's that um, an integral worldview. Like when someone's coming from an approach that could be called integral, or what I would talk about as being integral, um, is very similar to a middle way approach, the Manyamaka in Sutra Mahayana or in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and this middle way approach or this integral approach is like genuinely has a, a, an active, curious, tender hearted interest in really being with life as it's happening. And life is just messy and bursts at the seams, and it's so rich. Um, and so it's to, in response to the richness of, of my own mind, of the relationships I'm in, of this world, which is just so amazingly complex, um, it's an overall approach that leans in with curiosity and doesn't automatically say, my view's the right view, I'm right. And I'm going to show you how you're wrong and you need to line up with me. So instead, it, instead of like in a middle way view of holding one's own position and centering it and then having everything else be kind of secondary or kind of um, adventitious or like kind of an accessory to, to, to your own thing, an integral approach and also just a bodhisattva approach is really like, what can I do in my engagement with my experience now and tomorrow and the next day? to really tune into what's going on and how can I learn from it and be with it as fully as possible in a way that's like mutually nourishing, mutually curious and kind of activates, um, activates life as like a very interesting exploration that we're a part of. And like, how can I actually serve? How can I serve beings? I think that's the, the key kind of um, 
insight of both the integral approach and also bodhisattva approach in Buddhist terms. Like, what's going on in the situation? How can I be with it so that everything is mutually boosted? I would say that's a broad definition of, Engle- of integral. And then there's yeah. a lot of different theorists and meta-theoreticians, um, and of course, Buddhists and Buddhist masters that have a lot of different ways of scholastically and experientially exploring that approach, exploring the world that you discover when you have an open-minded, curious approach. Um, so I would think of it as like the integral approach is almost like the world that you're in and a part of. Mm-hmm. And the, the theories that you would theorize about it, whether it's Ken Wilber or a lot of other people who point to this way of being, the theory is more like the furniture or like the vehicles you move through the world in. Um, and if the theories are helpful in science, if the models, if they're working models that are helpful to make a better working model, use it. And if that's skillful. And if it's not helpful, don't worry. Find another vehicle. Find another way to color the room to make it, you know, a more kind of overall enjoyable experience for yourself and others. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, You you know, I'm curious for you, the development too of how, because it sounded like, like you met kind of Ken Wilber's um, philosophies and, and your works first. Yeah. And then, and then you met the Dharma and, um, you know, do you think the working with Ken Wilber's uh, approaches and philosophies like opened you to the Dharma, and 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 did it did it flavor it in some way, or or allow you to see it kind of more uniquely? You think, and is and and, and that passion for integral and Dharma and how these connect is that did that start then, or is it something that's evolved? Kind of the the views on that. I think it's changed over time. Um, I really started getting more actively into Buddhism when I was in undergrad studying philosophy. Um, and I was around so many people that were just incredibly brilliant in very analytic, logical ways. I mean, just impressive, impressively kind of magnificent, logical reasoning people. Um, but then I, I also at the same time would see those same people like literally almost get hit by cars when they cross the street because... <laughs> They were just so good and into their way of kind of genius level, kind of like parsing experience, but at at the expense of what was happening around them. And that I just saw that in my experience. So the question was like, well, there has to be a way where you can integrate that a little more thoroughly or, or just not in a judgmental way, but just, well, how do I want to do it? Because I like to try to be more smart. And I also want to be really kind hearted and like actually helpful in my immediate circumstances. And I'm still working on both those. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm a dummy and uh, just fumbling in the dark and obviously just so selfish. And I mean, just on the path, a student on the path. Um, and so as like once the, the question was, well, how can you unify study and practice? Or what does that even mean? How can you like hone intelligence and expand the definition of intelligence to include all these other ways of being in the world? Um, then Buddhism, like I came across some Buddhist books and that there's so many different techniques to actually stabilize a more attentive, present, ongoing engagement with it. reality. And like, of course, there's a scholastic tradition that's very extensive, but at that point I got into going to Vipassana okay. um, and started going on these 10 day going to retreats and then serving there. Um, and that was just, uh, 
a brutal, a brutally beautiful, um, honest self-assessment of like, I love the Dharma. I love engaging my mind. And it's so difficult. And so that was a challenge because there's all the tools to actually stay present moment that the Buddha provided even in that Theravada context, which is so gorgeous and amazing and leads to liberation. I'm very confident in that from what I've kind of, you know, from these teachings of the Buddha. Um, yeah. And at the same time, it's my mind would just react so strongly against trying to stay in the present. I mean, try to stay present for five minutes uninterruptedly or 10 days straight. And it's just a, it's a challenge, right, Scott? <laughs> it is a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I like this, you know, what you're bringing up already, which is this kind of sometimes what seems to be at odds, uh, where you have this like extreme analytic approach through, through thinking, through our thinking mind, through logical analysis. And then, you know, you have this quote unquote meditative approach that is sort of like, you know, some people might interpret that as like turning the thinking mind off or something like that. And, you know, this is something in, in, in the Tibetan Buddhist lineages that both of you, both you and I have experienced as, as sort of like, there's another way <laughs> to, to do it. Uh, you know, and, and you already mentioned it, which is like the middle way approach where we're, we're using reasoning, we're using logic, we're using our thinking mind in a healthy way to deconstruct the cause of suffering. Um, or causes plural and um and at the same time we're also you know as you said like growing attention growing awareness uh cultivating it trying to understand how to bring that into experience via refining and and strengthening you know those 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 meditative aspects of mind so so yeah and anything kind of on that for you on that so you already mentioned it how the middle way meets integral you know, but um, I would love to go there, you know, a little bit more. And for, for listeners out there, if you can define the middle way <laughs> and or Madhyamaka is the Sanskrit word a little bit more, just for people who might be hearing it for the first time. Wonderful. Well, as you know, it's like such a vast, profound topic, the middle way or Madhyamaka. Um, and so we'll just like peek into it a, a tiny bit, I guess. Um, yeah. So... I have an ongoing abiding sense of I'm here and I'm basically the center of the universe. Like kind of, I'm the main actor in the play and like everything's around me. And that's kind of the default mode of me. And they would say of any sentient being, there's the felt sense that I'm here. I'm the center of it. I'm ongoing. I'm a continuous me and I'm the, I'm the most important one. You know, I'm this, I am the most special. So that's kind of what sentient mind is. And then the Buddha so kindly said, well, okay, well, you know, how is this sense of me all the time? And he said, you know, it's kind of hard. It's, it's challenging being alive, right? And, and it is. It's, it's really challenging. And there's fundamentally things keep moving. And so they're uncertain. And like the fact that things are uncertain causes a distress, causes a disease and a dissatisfaction. And so there is this suffering. Um, and the Buddha said, well, try to really find what is that suffering what's the cause of that suffering how does it work um and laid out a path to discover like the cessation or the kind of conclusion of that suffering the ending of the suffering um and then the problem is that if in my mind as a selfish person 
I can get a little too hung up on my path and my freedom and my lack of suffering and my torment. Um, it all still centers around me. And so the second turning um, that the Buddha taught the, of this, even if you try to look for the self as a fixed thing there, and he gave all these methods to help us point out and try to discover that for ourselves, um, we come to some kind of a resolution or like at least glimpses into it um, that, you know, there isn't this fixed, solid, ultra important me there. Um, and so that's a lack of fixated self or no fixed self. Um, and then the challenge with that and the reason the Buddha told us to look further, that even if the self is unfindable, um, we still locate our position in the world in so many ways. We still try to hold on. So we call it grasping, grasping on subject, grasping on object. And mm -hmm. because of that, um, then the Buddha's second turning was like, if you really, for yourself, if that's adventurous, look and see what is the object you're holding on to? What is the emotion you're holding on to? What is this feature of holding that we constantly sticking ourselves in place to lock things so that they can be more or less like, so we can have an ongoing sense of this is okay. Like I'm, I'm not suffering now. Um, and that second turning was later talked about as the middle way or the, yeah. um, yeah, the middle way is Yamaka. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just for some of the listeners out there, cool. you know, why would we, you know, it's, yeah, it's the Sanskrit word, Madhyamaka, but uh, what's, what's middle about it? You know, this is, I think the interesting point that gets to, you know, uh, I'd like to hear from you on it. Uh, on you know, because some people might think middle like yeah. uh, some kind of compromise, you know, and and in this case, yeah. it means something a little different. So, just curious if you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, a lot of ways to define it. Um, Elizabeth Matthies Namgyal, a great Dharma teacher, she defines it as the mind point poised for insight mm -hmm. or in, in an open question. Um, that although things don't centralized in fixed, frozen, static ways, although there's nothing permanent and fixed anywhere, everything still happens. So there still is relative truth. There still is apparent relationality. There still are things engaging each other. And if we really try to zoom in and try to find the thing or a thing, a single thing, it says it, it, says it opens under inquiry. Like through our analysis, things keep getting texturized more, keep getting tenderized more, keep getting more nuanced, more complex, basically more mysterious or more relational. Um, and so although things aren't fixed, it actually means it's because there's a plurality or there's a constant like intermultiplicity of dynamic relationships. So to put that simply, I feel like there's an abiding sense of me. And if I look for it, I can't find a fixed dividing sense of me. So it seems like, well, there's no me. There's nothing. And if I look outside, there's no thing there that's fixed. So there's no thing there outside, no thing here inside. So the problem of that is there can be a grasping onto no thingness or nothingness. And that grasping is the second error, which the Buddha then taught the second turning for. No, it's not nothingness because things keep moving. Relationships keep dynamically unfolding. And the, the energy, the creative expression of mind is even more bright and more dynamic when we grasp less. And so what would be a middle way? The middle way would be the middle way between locking things into place and then acting as if nothing's happening. The middle way between eternalism or permanence 
and nihilism or nothingness. Um, the middle way is just that poise, the poise position. It's when the mind and the heart are like responsibly engaged and responsibly dynamic, but they're not boxing anything in in a fixed final way. And that's how it's related to an integral approach. Yeah, It's the not boxing in a final fixed way where they line up because in, because things are moving. Relationships do change. I change. Everything's changing. Um, and that can be like fundamentally frightening. Um, but it also can be fundamentally, um, what would be the word? Liberating. It's a liberating. <laughs> it's a constant, a constant rug pulling. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You never exactly know where it's going to go. You never really know how it's going to turn out. And that's the kind of that openness, the open dimensionality of reality is where Vajrayana comes in. Mm. And it skillfully tries to like, with the guidance of like someone who's really accomplished to basically an expert in being able to help us explore the richness of reality further, deeper, wider, more closely. And so there's this constant ongoing rug pulling. So based on a, mind, a middle way view of like trying to always be in a poised kind of tender receptive state of mind an openness of heart, then we have a guide who we trust and we say, where am I getting stuck? What am I not looking at? And we've asked them to help us find these blind spots. And they're really good at it because they found those blind spots in themselves and they've undone them. They've not made those mistakes. And so it's a constant, um, okay, so the mind can be poised for a second, but then it locks up or it dulls down or it gets excited or everything comes on. And then we have someone outside, a teacher, saying, look, you're, the nature's there and it's amazing, but you keep turning off. You keep shutting it out or turning turning the volume down. Um, and I say, well, how, why? And they keep pointing out like a mirror. This is how. Here's the grasping Brahma right here. And so then that is like to see in that, look in that, explore that creatively. It reopens a poised state of creative mind. And mm. so it re-engages the middle way. And so yeah. the whole path is just actually trying to stay in a, in a mind that's in the middle way, that's poised for insight, that's creative and engaged. An integral would say a similar thing, except it doesn't it doesn't locate itself within any specific tradition. Yeah. And that's how integral, especially like the Wolverian version, um, is significantly different. Because it's a it's a basically a framework of worldviews that's content free. So what do you it's mean not by located. that? Like, what do you mean by content free? Because if it's a view, it has content, right? <laughs> yeah. So but <laughs> Um, it's almost like the frameworks that a view, it's the filter system. It's like, it. yeah, yeah. it's not located in a culture or a time or a place or a language or a gender that integral as an approach is to poise the mind. Mm, and it's no. not saying this is the way you need to poise it, or these, this is what you have to see, or here's the language we'll use to describe it. It's just open frameworks. And I think that's how it really lines up in my mind with, the Buddha Dharma, Buddha's teachings yeah. as well. Um, all of Buddha's teachings, there's different approaches, right? As you've said a lot of times before, there's many Buddhisms. Yeah. Because there's many approaches to explore the nature of reality. Yeah. And different approaches are more or less suitable for different minds. 
And so in Nyingma tradition, they call those yamnas or a vehicle, like the vehicle from going to a place of suffering to a place of freedom where you are like basically a constant servant to beings. You're like actually genuinely care about beings and you're actually learning more and more ways to actually help them, to actually mm-hmm. attune with them and be with them in a full way that cares for them and loves them, but on their terms. Yeah. And that's where Bodhisattva Yana and Integral line up so seamlessly because an integral approach has to be on the terms. It has to work according to what is already in play. Not the not what do I want to be in play or how, how do I want it to be? What's my version? But like what is actually happening already with another person, for example. Yeah. So I have to listen. I have to become vulnerable to them and curiously learn from them, which means there's a lot of different ways of tuning into someone else. And that's where Integral provides these general kind of frames of how you can more easily tune into where someone else is coming from and their lived experience and not filter it through um, any specific set of techniques and also not require a Bodhisattva Bhumi realization to do it. Mm. You can have some general frameworks that anyone can learn like pretty quickly that, that basically will save you time on the path as like a good checks and balances system um, of like, is my mind poised for insight? Is my heart open and available now? Okay, checklist one, two, three, four, five. Okay, I'm poised, and now just see what happens. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so you know, for me, that that's a new insight around integral theory that it has it has a kind of a an altruism or compassion baked into it. I never thought of it like that. Um, obviously, I, I haven't. You know, mostly you're the one who's introduced me to it uh, through different PDFs and and books and stuff, and so I, I know very little, but. But I think the yeah, it's, I, that's new that it has. You, or, or, I, I guess that's a question. Like, does it, or is that something you've superimposed on it based on your Buddhist background, or, or does it have that innate kind of compassionate approach? Uh, approach of some kind of altruism where we're trying to benefit the world, ourselves, others, and relationships. It has that. It does. I would say similar to Buddhism. Um, that to speak of it as if it's compassion. Or like a, a felt experience, like a psychological state, like compassion. So that's seeing it from the inside, like a felt experience, like it is inherently compassionate. And from the outside, you can say reality does want it just there's a tendency for it to include more, mm. more relationalities, m- like more dynamic kind of give and take. Um, and so here, bigger fields of cause, condition and effect. Like there are inter, there are like, okay, a good example is for, in my mind, it's really been helpful to think about it as like ecologies. Mm, so yeah, like there's that, an, yeah. a bio, there's like ecology of a desert and there's an ecology of a, of a, you know, a coastline. And then there's the phase shift ecology in between. So yeah. you don't want to take the coastline ecology and put it into the desert. And you don't want to take the desert ecology and put it into the ocean. They have to actually overlap somewhere. There has to be this integrative pattern. And so what it is, is reality itself seems to have this tendency, because it's fully relational, to include more, to Mm. become more comprehensive. But it isn't just a mess. It isn't just randomly including some desert in an ocean with a little tundra and 
it actually has to line up and over time cohere. It has to actually be precise and elegant and aligned causally. So mm. cause, condition, and effect has to keep happening. And so on a in, in an interior way, like as a person, that feels like compassion, including more, more comprehensive. Yeah. On the relative level, more full, not just free, right? So in Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about liberation or freedom from suffering, freedom from self-fixation. Um, and it is. Free means flowing more freely. What that means is, as, as a more variety of experiences happen, I can still be with them and be flowing freely. And so then as a bodhisattva, I want to try to be with more and more variety of experiences and maintain that poise, that heart mind of enlightenment or bodhicitta. Yeah. And so just as reality seems to do that, like, you know, atoms form into groups and create molecules and molecules form and create cells and which create organs and tissue systems and human beings and there's this internesting or this layering of reality, and it seems to go towards greater inclusivity. And the, as the Buddhism, like the nine yana or nine vehicle system of study and practice in Tibetan Buddhism and Nyingma is just a perfect example of yeah, how wanna, these, these approaches lay those out layer themselves. Yeah, sweet. So the listeners, just, just kind of a brief nine yana. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'd say just maybe make it three if that's easier or like a little more yeah. elegant in this context. There's the first jhana, which is foundational Buddhism. And then in addition to that jhana is Sutra Mahayana, or the Bodhisattva jhana, the way of the Bodhisattva. And then in addition to that is the skillful means of the Vajrayana, or the indestructible vehicle. And so in order to have the Vajrayana, it includes a Sutra Mahayana, and that has to include the Theravada Foundational School. And so we have these internested ecologies of study and practice. We can unpack each of those ways of kind of becoming more free and full, both intellectually and then also experientially. So there's always a study side and a practice guide or side, or sometimes they say a scriptural side and a realization side, actually realizing and absorbing the meaning of what the teachings are about in your lived experience. And so the Koryana of like foundational Buddhism is the liberation of self, like freeing myself from all the habits that collapse, collapse the world around me and basically create a condition of suffering mm. for self and other. And then Mahayana says, well, everyone experiences suffering. We all want to be happy every single moment. And so have a bigger view, include more, be Maha or greater, like a greater view, a greater way of caring about the world. It includes caring about yourself. And in addition to that, caring about those around you, your parents, your friends, your kids, the strangers, the enemies, the aliens, all beings. And then Vajrayana, the third yana, um, indestructible vehicle, vehicle or Tibetan Buddhism says, that's such a big view. It's so bold and brave and amazing, the Bodhisattva yana view. So how can I actually make make myself achieve enlightenment quicker mm. so that and attune to beings more carefully more full of care more attentively more effectively more skillfully how can i do that how can i both become enlightened a little more comprehensively more quickly so that i can actually genuinely serve in a variety of situations and this is all talking about for or forever for all beings or forever. So it's a very big view, even in Sutra Mahayana. And so we have this 
the self is actually not fixed and crummy at all. It's actually this amazingly powerful, dynamic, creative nexus of relationship. And we're all that way. We all have this Buddha nature or this pure intelligence and goodness that literally has no limit. It's boundless. But to really actualize that and to explore that in relation to self and others and in between ourselves with each other in the world, that uses these Vajrayana skillful means methods to actually unveil that or to realize that, to have that kind of as a lived experience more quickly so that we can actually care for others more fully more soon. Um, So that's a three yana approach. And then just like the experience of compassion opening to become more inclusive, um, that's expanding. So is the detail and the precision with which we're kind of investigating our experience of self and other and world. Yeah. It's a lot, right? (laughs) I was just thinking, thinking, you know, oh man, you know, I I hope you all out there and on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you're listening, you know, we're not, we're not, (laughs) it's a lot, you know, these are, these are complex systems of, um, you know, structures of structuring the the Buddhist teaching. And then of course, there's even more systems for how to practice these and like, you know, actually develop and realize them. Uh, And that's where integral comes in. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also, that's also where pith instructions come in. Mm, Yeah. my, one of my teachers, Venerable Kempo Sang Dong Rinpoche, said, if you really understand the Buddha's teachings well, you'll see that every single thing he taught was a pith instruction. Mm, yeah. So it perfectly matched. What do you mean by pith instruction? Just to yeah. clarify that for people. Yeah, good. So we're given the situation of who was around the Buddha, what was happening, yeah. what was the context. A pith instruction cares it go it tunes exactly to the living dynamics of what's happening the person their mind their trauma their language what they've been through their past lives it all these nuanced details and it's ex- a pith instruction is the exact instruction that given that context will be the next way for that mind and that part to open more fully mm. to turn on more brightly so whatever is that, whatever's available in a context to become more nutritious, more nourished, more inclusive of its nature and of its relationships, that's a pith instruction. And so the Four Noble Truths is a set of pith instructions. And so yeah. are, you know, the teaching on bodhicitta, like the nature of heart-mind when it's open. Or, and so every single thing the Buddha taught was a pith instruction. And the challenge is, is I can't see my mind and my heart that clearly to know what is the perfect voice thing for me right now. Yeah, what's your pith instruction in this moment? Yeah, that's... that's in this moment. Yeah. And so, like, enter make mindfulness. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the first thing we have to do is actually show up and be like, well, what is going on with me now? And as we do that, we see there's a lot more than meets the eye within me, without me. And there's a lot more there. So the first step of any of these practices is having the mind be attentive to what is happening right now. Yeah. So that's mindfulness. And then there's a lot of techniques that go beyond that. Okay, what is going on with my body? What is going on with my mind? And that's where these skillful means come in to pull out the rug or of ego clinging and self-centeredness a little more thoroughly so yeah. that I'm just not being attentive to the negative habit I'm doing. I'm actually releasing it. 
I'm actually not giving it energy and power and fundamentally actually looking so closely at the way my mind is holding. There's a lot of power in that holding. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of creative energy in that holding. And if instead of clutching around me so tightly, I can use that same power and open towards sharing, towards caring and love and creative dynamic kind of expression, all of a sudden reality, the richness of it, of relationships of my mind and heart, they become ways to like artistically engage with the world and and each other, like in my own experience too. So that's easier said than done because the ego will not, it, it, it doesn't want to get evicted. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for me, pith instruction even though I, I, I agree, I, I see all the Buddhist teachings as a pith instruction when you really kind of, you know, because the circumstance of a sutra is setting up the premise that it's a pith instruction. Mm-hmm. You know, when we actually pay attention to like the Heart Sutra, the Vajrakutra mm-hmm. Sutra, Vimalakirti Sutra, whatever it is, you start to see, oh, they're setting, you know, I used to think it was like throwaway. Why do they talk so much about like the Buddha's here and then Shariputra's here and then, you know, this is happening and these people are talking to the, you know, why so much environmental uh, information? And it's because it's setting up the circumstance of, you know, what it is, you know, not, you know, so we have a deeper relationship to it um, through the sutra or or whatever of the Buddhist teachings we're we're engaging with. But um, yeah. uh, and as sensitive postmodernists, yeah, <laughs> as people as people who care about context, we're context yeah. sensitive. We don't want to just force feed our answer or our system or our monological colonizing thing in every circumstance. We want to be attentive and caring and responsive to what's happening in life. That's yeah. a really healthy aspect of like being a 21st century person. And the Buddha did this 2,500 years ago. Yeah, it's really, yeah, and you bring up a really good point, which is that this next wave of human kindness and development, you know, integral, and of course, Buddha Dharma, you and I, you know, would would argue Buddha Dharma, but of course, integral or other paths are wonderful too, because people then don't have to feel, if they're allergy around religion or, you know, yeah. becoming something triggers, they can use some other techniques or ways. But But the whole point is, you know, how do we really enact kindness and you know exactly. right and so and how do we really enact uh human relation and and the the remedying or the the the, re- the reduction of pain and suffering for all and you know buddhism would say also the elimination but let's just start with the reduction of pain uh uncomfort you know struggle for all um there's almost this next wave where it's like there needs to be this recognition recognition you're advocating for it in a in a really clear way this recognition that we um if we're stuck in our in our, in any kind of rigidity around how we're viewing ourselves or someone else and we're not open to there being another truth we're not going to be able to enact kindness love and compassion we're and then buddhism would say we're actually going to produce more suffering for ourselves and others. And so I think that's, you're bringing it out a little bit, but I'd love to hear yeah. more about that. Cause it's sort of like, I think, I think I, it's almost like there's some of us who have recognized this already, uh, you know, uh, you know, you and I through the fortune of, of the Buddha Dharma. And of course that doesn't mean we're complete. We're working on a rigidity, but um, I think there's a lot of people who are just like, they're at a dead end and they don't know what to do. They've like hit a dead end where all their judgment, all the negativity bias, 
all the sort of cynicism, they're just seeing how much suffering that's producing for yeah. them. And they want something else. They just don't know where to yeah. turn, you know? Yeah. So would love your more thoughts on that. You started to introduce it. Yeah. And here's where, yeah, in so many ways, Buddha Dharma really shines. Yeah. So, as the as we come to see that things are more complex than we thought initially there's a lot more meta crises happening now there's a lot more challenges and wicked problems there's there's situations ongoing in the world now and also in in countries and also local areas that in order to actually engage them we need cooperation we need different experts and different interested people to actually collaborate to say, oh, to integrate this valuable aspect of your insight and your skill set and this history you bring to bear, and to actually weave them into larger, more complete, more comprehensive responses to these challenges. Mm. So that's the situation we're in now, whether we like it or not, or whether we admit it or not. Like it's a very every all this interdependence is has gotten lined up so tightly. And yeah. things are moving between the systems so quickly that the only way to engage this is to have a more comprehensive response. And where Buddha Dharma then takes that and does an additional kind of nutritious kind of opening is, it says, if you look closely at relationality, if you at your own mind, you'll see there's actually an abiding thread of awareness, a continuity of awareness that does not change. Mm. And as we come to see change so rapid and so dynamic and so energetic now, everything is changing and morphing so quickly in some combinations that are healthy and a lot of combinations that we just don't know what's going to happen and others that are really unhealthy. Um, What Buddhism or what Buddha said is if you actually look close enough, there is this unchanging nature of mind. And so, in middle way terms, there is an absolute truth. Yeah. There is this abiding, open awareness that regardless of whatever else happens, it's always open and aware and clear. It's always kind and loving and engaged. And so, part of the response to the 21st century life in a very dynamic time is, is the importance of trying to recognize this unchanging aspect of mind and heart, this absolute truth. And there's different wisdom traditions that have different sets of techniques and lineages to do this. But Buddha Dharma has many different techniques to reveal this. And then the awesome thing about it is the more we would get in touch with what is actually spacious and open and accommodating with our experience, the more relationship we can include, the more dynamic cause, condition, and effect we actually care about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it's not another gateway to more cynicism and individualism. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's the opposite. So it gives us a really giant sweeping relief of like, regardless of how this plays out, there is this open dimensionality or this openness that is unaffected. It's like the sky is not affected by the weather. That Mm -hmm. openness is there. Um, But the more open we can get the like, then it's like, the more, it's like here, a good example that I found is, um, it's like if you have a cup of water and you put it in like a tablespoon of salt in the cup, it ruins the water. But mm-hmm. if you make your mind like an ocean, 
if you mm. make your if you make your heart like a lake, then you put a little bit of salt in it. It's no big deal. And so, having some technique that actually helps us explore and taste for ourselves what is it like to have an openness of heart and an openness of mind that's so big that it can hold the challenge and the tension and the dynamic energy of friction, of uncertainty, of deep trauma. Like, what's that openness bring? And it actually brings more love. It brings more sympathetic joy, more rejoicing, more compassion. So we want to show up more carefully in our relationships and our lives. And that then becomes a question of, maybe I have to learn some physics. Maybe I need to learn some math. Maybe I need to learn Mm -hmm. another language. So maybe I need to actually train or study in the multiplicity of ways that actually enables me to use this kind of like more settled awareness that's more tuned in to the living dynamics of what's going on with someone else or what's this particular problem we have to deal with right now. Yeah. And so Integral does that very loving, like lovingly and elegantly. And of course, the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is all about that. All these great masters, His Holiness Karmapa, His Holiness Dalai Lama is a perfect example. He's been doing these mind and life conferences with scientists and cosmologists and psychiatrists and psychologists and neuroscientists for almost like 35 years now. Yeah. And how do all these specialists who've trained and researched so extensively, how can we kind of integrate or pool our knowledge, our different skills, our research to see more comprehensive patterns, more elegant ways that life actually is mutually enriching. And so that I can show up in this specific context with a tool that's needed in an effective way that brings the relief, the, the reduced suffering for self and others. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. It's almost like for me more and more, and I don't want to be over simplistic, but, um, you know, when we, when we let go of trying to find the answer, you know, Mm -hmm. capital A answer, um, we actually focus more on and pay more attention to the, to the relationality or the relationships surrounding, uh, uh, an event or a situation or, you know, an emotion, a thought, whatever it is, external, internal. So to me, there's like that, that's what you're pointing out is sort of, you know, that's part of it. And then, of course, within that relationality, we can then develop more complexity if it's needed. But we're not coming, we're not putting complexity first. We're putting nowness and openness to ourselves in the moment first. That, is that what I'm hearing you advocate for? Yeah. I mean, this, I think that Buddhism advocates for it in general. Like a phrase that's been helpful for me is simplicity within complexity. Yeah. So, it's not running away from the complexity of life, of experience, the richness. It actually is in the middle of the storm or it's in the middle of the dynamic impulse of like emergent living. But it's like, how do we do that elegantly? How do we actually do that in a graceful way? And that's where the simplicity is. So we're not trying to erase or kind of like um, normalized out of com- really rich, juicy diversity. We're not trying to flatten things. We're trying to let the things be richly as they are and mm. see the elegant through line, see the different interweaving patterns between and within. So this is a liminal thing. This is a bardo, a yeah. bardo exploration. Um, we can use the word middle now. It's a middle thing because the middle exactly. is neither side. So it's, it's also yeah. a middle thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the integration point. It's yeah. the it's the weaving, the larger story that we're all a part of. 
And it's, mm-hmm. there's not, and that's where the middleweight teachings are also super relevant. There's no final story. There's yeah. no final answer. Like you said, there's no final fixed me. There's no final fixed end. It's always ongoingly changing. Mm-hmm. There's no final frame. And that's where ideas of, of achieving some universal final end of anything, um, middle way view of Buddhist teachings, they say that's a fundamental mistake. Yeah, that's it's where that nirvana, going, is even re- nirvana even gets refuted uh, somewhat, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sutra, no path, no wisdom, no attainment, yeah. no non-attainment. It basically, any position we try to hold is a final answer. The rug gets pulled. And says, look closer, it's unfindable too. And instead of freaking out and saying nothing, there's nothing, we say there's openness and it includes everything. And so then you get Nagarjuna says the view beyond all views is to actually see the the utter infinite relationality of every single position. Yeah. And so call that openness or call that interdependence. I mean, interdependence, you know, but to really explore that in a textured way where um, the complexity is honored, but it actually still lands in a, in a lived experience that actually gets traction. And so yeah. integral is really good at saying, okay, what are the, what are the basic dynamics of a situation? So you're not leaving out like a gaping um, hole in your theory or your engagement because mm-hmm. no. So what are the big boxes and the nine yana system of the Buddha does that too. Like, there's a quick checklist, as you know, like the three points that are really helpful that are repeated every time I've ever received a teaching. Activate joint appreciation. That's called renunciation mind. Yeah. Generate bodhicitta, the heart mind of enlightenment. Help everyone be happy and free. Enlightened. Three, pure perception. See that when we're actually not in a fixated state of mind and we're in an open-hearted engagement, actually things are just aligned and attuning like Naturally, it's autopoetic, sympoetic systems of interrelationality or interdependence. And so these three points, they're pith instructions. That's how like Tibetan Buddhism elegantly brings these three yanas together. Like the so-called Hinayana or foundation of Buddhism, Mahayana, Vajrayana, it's renunciation, bodhicitta, pure perception. And that's one of the ways that as a lineage teaching in terms of Vajrayana, Buddha Dharma, it has these very pithy ways that bring entire systems or ecologies together in these really succinct, elegant, simple within complexity. They like really hit all the main nodes and activate the whole system. And that's arguably, that's why Vajrayana is a more swift path. You yeah. take an entire system, you align all the different parts of the system, and then you let it sync up with itself more fully. And it, it's just more comprehensive. And that way, it's just more integral. It's trying to see what are all the like essential parts or fundamentals, the first principles that have to be cared for. You pay attention to all of them, and then you let the system, its own natural intelligence, self-correct. Mm. Yeah, really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. You know, I, I love to segue into talking a little bit about kind of the subtitle of the book, uh, Preserving um, Lineage in the 21st, 21st Century. Um, you know, as a segue to that, I, I, if it's okay, I'd love to share this, this kind of Sony Rimshay is one of his approaches to simplicity and complexity. And I, I find it really pithy and, um, helpful. And then I think from this, I'd love for us to segue into like 
Okay, well, I'll start with that, and then then <laughs> then I'll I'll request um, you. Um, so yeah, he 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 just basically has this teaching on um, the development of simplicity on the inside and complexity on the outside, and it's it's very much saying the same thing you're saying. Yeah, and he gives this example that you know when we are when 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 there's complexity on the on the inside, he's referring to a kind of neurosis, a kind of anxious. Um, resistance of impermanence you know you're, you're bringing up impermanence you know another way to talk about this rug pull right uh, that you're describing is just impermanence that things are changing and the moment we land on the rug the rug's going to naturally change and if we resist that we're going to struggle we're going to suffer and that would be a part of the complexity where we we don't you know, we might not have an awareness of that or we just might not be able to accept that and instead, yeah. we're holding a type of neurotic complexity on the inside that's trying to organize and uh, uh, box everything in, you know, to its own place. And so it's like it's like juggling with, you know, like five hundred, you know, balls or something like that. That's what it, it's like. When I'm, it's like making a a big fat complex <laughs> book. <laughs> oh, show us your book. Show us your book. I, I I meant to ask you at the beginning. Wonderful, beautiful. We got the No, I showed uh, it, you know. Hold it up if you don't mind. I'll, I'll, you know, for those of you listening via audio on on a podcast platform, it's got a beautiful image of Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava on the front, and it is a big, thick book. That's why I was like, Drakpa, you, uh, you know, just just the thought of doing something like that, you know, uh, will will keep me up at night. So, congrats on just getting something like that finished. <laughs> but um, I'm not surprised. You're, you're as 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 we can all see, you're incredibly developed and intelligent person um so yeah going back to this complexity simplicity so it's sort of like we can see where complexity actually causes suffering and then and then complexity on the outside you know you're pointing that out you know in the last 20 minutes or so um that's just a natural feature of the world because interdependence is so complex and cause and effect is so complex right um and again i'm just saying what you're saying i'm just recapitulating in, in, in a different way um and I think, you know, through Sonia Shea's kind of beautiful pith instruction. So we can see it's already complex on the outside. We can't change that, right? And so and we don't need to. Yeah, we don't need to. And and so so what so I, I think there's this question of what simplicity looks like. And of course, you and I adhere that we develop inner simplicity via engaging with the lineage and the lineage teachings and practices. Um, and so I'd like to segue into that as well as preserving that and what that means to you. But um, I also want to describe something that's quite funny because when I first heard this this instruction or this teaching from Sonarim Shape, he also described uh, what not to do. He said, "I mean, most of us struggle more with being complex on the inside and complex on the outside, right? Meaning, like the world is complex and we're also complex, and 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 we're 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 anxious, we're stressed, we're not able to, uh, you know, you put it you put it beautifully a few minutes ago, like we're not able to find that." I'm paraphrasing, but like that ground of changelessness, right? Um, that's a, I think it'd be a wonderful definition for simplicity, which is a state of, it, not a state of mind, it's a way of being, but it happens through mind, happens through awareness and, and meditation. But, um, but yeah, the, the, you know, when, when he was pointing out this teaching, uh, Sonia Mishay would, would say, you know, but, but really it's a lot of suffering when you're completely, actually complex on the inside and you're trying to force the world or your experience into being simple on the outside he said that's the most suffering and i was a monk at the time 
And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, that's pretty much what I'm doing, you know, because I was very complex and, and neurotic. I, I still am. But, um, but also I was trying to have this artifice of simplicity of being a monk. And it was a real struggle for that reason. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a funny kind of aha moment of like, oh, you know, I need to work on the simplicity on the inside and use the external simplicity of being a monk to develop the inner simplicity. And then, of course, once we develop inner simplicity, we could also hold complexity. So I'd love to hear your feedback on that, but also segueing in, into like preserving, you know, what lineage is, you know, preserving it, all of that for the benefit of what we're describing here. Again, his only Dalai Lama is such a good example. He meets with diplomats and world leaders, presidents, prime ministers. He's been doing that for decades. And internally, you can tell by how he acts. He's always playful. There's always a light touch, a lightness. A jo- like he's so jovial and delighted and also very serious and very intense when that's appropriate. Like he's a masterful um, authority of Buddha Dharma by all accounts. And he can lead really complex empowerments. And he can also just, you know, play with... You know, when a situation's too tight, too tense, too serious, too dramatic, he's really good at popping the bubble. And everyone just remembering, we're just humans here. We're trying to do our best. And like, how can we reset it to like activate this common ground we have, this goodness that we have inside, this amazing opportunity we have to collaborate together. And so, I don't know, and you can frame that situation in a lot of different ways. I mean, To have simplicity inside in a complex world, right? Fearless simplicity, how to live in a complex world. Um, Or carefree dignity, like, or Patrick Rinpoche, like how to have the gut that's like in deep integrity and the compassion, the bodhicitta that's so blazingly bright inside and the clarity of mind, the boldness, the openness of vision Mm. to like have wisdom, compassion, and skillful means, power, compassion and insight all together as a seamless individual as a person in the world who has to deal with these things that are out of my control so how to do that that's the that's the question and that's like where it's really relevant because each of us needs to find the way that it works for me Mm. right now and that's why you don't need to do like a giant this you don't need to do (laughs) all all nine yanas at once You don't need to master the 84,000 teachings, but we do, in order to maintain the integrity of a living system, we do need to like study enough to know what are the essential first principles or the main points that like have to be in place in order to maintain the integrity of a system. Like, like skillful means, compassion, wisdom, or like the four noble truths, or the four boundless qualities. The Buddha gave so many different ways. It shows how just amazingly, um, he's just an enlightened being. I mean, it's like so impressive the way he can take an inexhaustible, infinite reality and then slice it up, slice that pie in any variety of way that's actually going to help the being that he's with right then. Yeah. And yeah. in that slicing or in that like simplifying, of reality, he's not distorting reality. He's not adding anything or deleting anything. 
he's actually just making it digestible for the person he's with. So if, if you want to hear about one yana, talk about Dzogchen. If you want to hear about two yanas, talk about Sutra and Tantra. If you want three yanas, foundational Buddhism, Sutra Mahayana, Tantra Mahayana. If you want four yanas, right? I mean, he kept doing this, foundational Buddhism, Sutra Mahayana, outer Tantras, inner Tantras, or nine, or 84,000. And what each of us needs to do is like keep checking in with, what is helping my mind now? Like, what is helping my heart now to open a little more, to have a little more inner confidence, to have a little more clarity of vision? Like, those are real lived practitioner questions. And so it's, what's the simplicity, the elegance, the grace that, I, that actually makes my mind poised right now? Not so I dumb down the complexity, but so I can include more of it. And I can include it in a way that actually brings these kind of dynamic relationships together into larger, more cohesive wholes, into a larger system. Some people like talking about it as a game. And this is really related in Buddhism. They talk about relative truth or relational truth, cause, condition, and effect. And Buddhist definition of relational or relative truth is always artificial, fabricated, not true. It's like a husk. It's always, in in integral terms, it's always partial, Mm. which means it's limited. It includes part of the story, but not all of it. So in science, a model, every model is an approximation of what reality is. It's not actually reality. It's representing it. And so the thing is, is we need to use what works for my mind and heart now as as a game or as a language or as a an elegant set of simple ways that I can include more. I can be with more dynamic energy. I can just, I can honor the more of the fullness of myself, the parts of myself that I'm scared to look at, that take a lot of courage and energy and like support to look at. That's why always the Buddha Dharma Sangha, the three jewels, like the Buddha is going to tell us, oh, that there is such a being who became fully awake and the Dharma, how did that happen? How can we do that? And the Sangha, what are the supportive conditions, including people on the path, that can actually boost us up? And we can mm-hmm. boost too. We can mutually inspire each other and like help each other, like keep things on track, keep the elegance and the dignity of the system cohesive, together, integrated. And that's all about preservation. And so it's not innovation versus preservation, or it's not some like very fundamentalist version of conservative, conserving. What we're doing is conserving the really critically important aspects of reality that are so valuable. And the question is, what are those points? What are those elegant, simple essentials? But those essentials are, are naturally dynamic. They're naturally adaptive. They don't shut out life. They include life. So they're naturally responsive. So they're not fundamentalist essential things we need to conserve. They're like the key pithy points that if we turn those on in our experience right now, we'll become more open-hearted and more clear-headed. And so, but it's a lift question for each person. What is it for my mind right now? And then so we can have a teacher or we can have a sangha community that helps us see, well, what, what helps me now? What is supportive for my flourishing now? And that could be a partnership, that could be a, a kid or with a wisdom elder or with an accomplished master. It depends on the mind. And that's why Buddha wasn't was fundamentally like he was not dogmatic. Mm. He said, 
here's a method, use it when it's helpful. And once you achieve the benefit of the method, don't keep applying it because it can, you can over apply it. You're already, you're already on cruise level. You don't have to turn the engines on then. then. But if you lose cruise level and the mind locks up again, you have that tool available. And then also in a Bodhisattva view, if you never need that tool again, you still have it to be able to carefully relate with others. This yep. is not all about my path. This is about like actually learning how to like cue into what's helpful for others. And that's where the elegance is. Like we need to like see clearly what's actually helps the alignment in this situation. How can I attune to it? How can I care and uplift it more? Mm. And so, yeah, so yeah. So integral has its own sets of, of ways of framing that. Um, they talk about stages, states, types, lines, shadow. Mm. Um, and so there are these different big boxes. Like in Nigma Buddhism has all of these. It's fundamentally has all this. So that's kind of part of the when I was coming to practice, when I was practicing Buddha Dharma for a bit, and I still am, and I was studying integral a bit, I could see the more I practiced and studied Buddhism, the more I could see how it's an inherently integral system. Mm, yeah. So, which means it was produced by a mind, the Buddha Dharma it was a set of techniques and insights that were revealed by a mind that was at the very least an integral level an integral worldview because it was curiously including more and more cause condition and effect. So the Buddha, I think is way beyond integral. Yeah. yeah. Post, 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 post integral. It just happens to be the next step that most human beings, if we're going to live together on a planet for hopefully longer, we need to have more of our systems be more integral or integrated, more of a collaboration and less of a black and white binary war because there's a lot of ways to go to war and there's a pre-modern way and a modern way and a post-modern way and integral fundamentally doesn't want to go to war it says what do you bring that's good what do i bring that's good how can we integrate these to a more comprehensive full system or responsiveness that honors as much as a much of the beauty the goodness and the truth of reality as we possibly can always knowing that things are going to keep changing and we're going to need to include more. So it never becomes a final answer or like some fixed dogma. So the system itself is only so good as the, the tool or the technique maintains the poise of mind and heart. And once it doesn't maintain it, find a better working model. That's why Buddhism can look one way in Japan and one way in Sri Lanka. And it can look a whole nother way in the wild west of contemporary culture with smartphones and AI disembodied, imaginal, yellow <laughs> elephants speaking, you know, languages where have no clue, like, get ready for the explosion. So, yeah, so complexity, I think, I think 10 years from now, we'll look back on these times as the good old days. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Because it'll look so much simpler. 2023 will look a lot more simple than 2033. For sure, yeah. And I think a lot of that comes down to power. This is really relevant to Vajrayana in particular. Yeah. Because in Vajrayana, basically it's saying, if you don't have the heart of bodhicitta, of heart, mind, of enlightenment, this 
deep compassion for all beings. I'm here to serve beings. What actually helps them? Not what I want for them, but what actually helps them. And they would agree, you know. So Vagriana introduces these skillful means to sync up and connect with more of the relationality of experience. More quickly, more thoroughly. But if you don't do this with bodhicitta, and all you do is have a set of ways of seeing more clearly where someone else is at and what their condition is, then you can take advantage of that. Hmm. That's why bodhicitta, compassion, is always at the heart of authentic lineage in Buddhism and in Tibetan Buddhism very much so. If you just take the methods and you don't do it with compassion, that's called rudra. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you're taking a system that could help the enlightenment of all beings and instead you're using it for your own personal power. The one Mm. ring to rule them all. And that is like the fundamental mistake that Buddhism points to. And what we're kind of entering into is we're starting to play with technology and insights, artificial intelligence, ways of having large language model systems have a lot more expansive kind of like um, engagement with cause, condition, and effect. But it doesn't yet require bodhicitta which means we can do more damage on a bigger scale more quickly and more accidentally too. Yeah. But Vajrayana yeah. says you don't play, you can't, if you don't have the ability to, to work with that much cause, condition, and effect skillfully or that much power, then don't do it. Like yeah. you have to have bodhicitta and that's what's lacking. And so in how we talked about it earlier was the middle way view. You have to have the middle way view, that elegance of simplicity within complexity, in order to not cause a train re- chain reaction of a lot of distress. Yeah, because it's it's not just you're 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 bringing in a lot of things, including ethics. But the 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 Mayana perspective is it's not just about ethics. It, there also needs to be this openness and view that's moving beyond the two sides of existence and non-existence. Otherwise, the ethics are going to become rigid and non you know, ineffective and in fuller benefit. So I, I love how you're bringing that in in different ways where, you know, for those of you where bodhicitta is a new term, bodhicitta doesn't just mean being a nice person. It means actually having, living a life from the middle in the way we've been describing it. And then, and then from that middle, you also don't, don't see a difference between yourself and another or the happiness of yourself versus another. And so then through the skillful means of Vajrayana or, or just Mayana, general Mayana, we can benefit people a lot um, from that, from that place. Um, We're, we're all in this together. Yeah. So Buddhism and Bodhisattva, there's no such thing as an externality. There's no place where we get to ship all of our waste product to some other place and have someone else deal for it, deal with it. (laughs) That doesn't exist in Buddhism. And yet we're in samsara. Everything has unintended consequences. We always take energy from somewhere else to to sustain ourselves. Like it's fundamentally internested system of cause, condition, and effect. So it's, it just, there isn't, there is suffering because there is a push and a pull. There is a there is a this and a not that, but we're trying to grow to be more inclusive, like more um, interrelational or interdependent, more attentive to how that is actually what's already happening, and we're just seeing more of what we didn't see before. But little by little, it's drop by drop. This is such. I mean, I think one of the inspiring things for me is 
in terms of the view, like having a worldview or having a way of being with experience, a mode, a, a mode of it being that actually is inclusive and loving and like actually wants to, it shows up with a lot of care and attention. Um, or at least a, at least a practice of that. I consider it just like I'm practicing, you know, I have a practice of that. Oh. Yeah. We're, yeah. yeah, it's a, yeah, we're just, we're turning it on. Yeah. So we're, the practice turns it on and we're trying <laughs> to turn it on and trying to keep it on in a way that's actually responsive with what's happening around. Yeah. Um, it's Drogba, tricky, we, Scott. We, no, it's, it's, com- it's complex and yet so simple at the same time, so as, as you were pointing out. Um, we may have to do a part two. This is this is really wonderful. And I, I feel like we're actually getting to some really interesting kind of like, you know, inner content too on, on AI and sort of all these things. So so I, w- I would love to invite you back to to do a part two at some point if you're open to that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I'm happy. I'm happy to have more time. I mean, this is... It's so rich. All this exploration is so rich. And I think the point I was wanting to get to was um, every little bit counts. Any, If we slightly change our view to be more loving, to be more calm, more settled, more confident, that affects everything else we're going to do. And so like a tiny little tweak in the view, like one little drop mm-hmm. of doing a good thing has the power to to actually have a, a, a tremendously significant impact on the future, on the future of ourselves and on others. So we shouldn't hold out enlightenment or these big view projects like saving the world or like finally ending the suffering of all everything. Like we have to hold that lightly, both recognize what's absolute and what's relative like that in Buddhist framing, that's really key. Um, but just to not forget that like, That a moment, a moment of mind that's actually loving, that actually cares about all beings. The Buddha said that the merit, the virtue, the positive power or impact of that moment, if it were to be materialized as a thing, the entire universe could not, is not big enough to fill how much goodness is generated from a single moment of the mind poised for insight of it genuinely caring about other beings. Like it's so tremendously positive and impactful to have even a second of a mind like that. And so the practice, like trying to tune in again and again and relax and kind of connect and have dignity turn on and have creative intelligence shine on the prajna, the wisdom, whatever helps you do that is like to be celebrated. And each person should find the things that what does help me do that. And that changes mm-hmm. over time. So like to keep checking in with ourselves and, and a community we're in, if we're unfortunate or a guide, a wisdom elder, a teacher to help us keep doing that, keep being poised, keep being responsive, keep being further kind of integrated. And bit by bit, we basically, we basically allow ourselves to become more natural. We're basically more comfortable with like kind of going with the flow and doing that in a way that actually lines up with precision and isn't careless. It's actually attuned or aligned. It's not wishful thinking. It's not magical thinking. Um, It's actually um, amazingly attentive and intimately like 
paying attention to both self and other. But yeah, just as like really genuinely, if you if people have the opportunity and they have the belief, because belief is a powerful thing. If there are such beings in the world that have achieved this poise as a steady way, you mentioned Sokni Rinpoche, of course, His Holiness Dalai Lama, the Venerable Kempa Rinpoche's, Zogs Arkansas Rinpoche, His Holiness Karmapa, His Holiness Sakatrisen, all these masters. And this is just within the Buddhist context. I'm sure there's wisdom elders in other contexts, but they're around. And actually being around someone who's like that, being in their presence, like actually learning from them or like seeing their videos, listening to their podcasts, like receiving instruction and really contemplating it, like letting it touch your heart. Like that possibility is an open opportunity right now for us, like in this world. It's like one of the very beautiful things about the information age. If we're discerning with what we take in, what is signal and we're just, we discern what's signal and what's noise. What's healthy for me and what's not so good now? Like syncing up with beings that have this, the stability of poise of mind, like that level of openness of heart is amazingly beneficial. And it doesn't mean it's going to let us have all our wishes be granted. Because a lot of our wishes, it's better if we don't get them. The genie in the bottle, there's always unintended (laughs) consequences when we make the wish, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, a little bit of bodhicitta, like they'll help bodhicitta shine more brightly, those great wisdom beings. And I'm happy to, any time to talk about bodhicitta, that's the one simplicity within complexity element. If you have to boil down all of the maze of complexity of Buddha Dharma, of the whole Vajrayana view into a single word, it's bodhicitta, heart, mind of enlightenment. And that's the one word that can you can use to unpack every single other Thing in the Buddha's teachings that's not it's not reductionist it's not an oversimplification it's actually an elegant through line that weaves together all of the teachings so if in our world of like takeaways and powerpoints and five you know <laughs> life hacks the one life hack bodhicitta that is actually tried and true according to the lineage teachings of the Buddha and all the great masters say that in one voice the bodhicitta is the way that no matter what the situation, that will benefit self and others. Beautiful. Yeah. 100% agree. And and Lama Pema Drakpa, thank you so much for sharing just your wisdom about your book, about kind of the intersection of, of inter- integral theory in Tibetan Buddhism. And yeah, I think we definitely need a part two <laughs> to continue our conversation. Um just just real quick, where can people get the book? I'll, I'll put it in, in the notes on YouTube, but for the people listening on pod, uh, Spotify or somewhere else, uh, where can they connect with you? Where can they where can they get your book? Yeah, so um, I live at Padma Samuelang. It's a retreat center of the Venerable Kempa Rinpoche's, and their website is padmasambhava.org. Mm-hmm. That's Pad, Padmasambhava, the person who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. Padmasambhava.org. And on there, there's like a little Dharma store. It has the book. And of course, on Amazon, like if you look up Integral View of Tibetan Buddhism, um, that's there now. Um, Yeah. And then, I don't know. I'd say use the book if you you engage it at all. Like use it to actually develop confidence that you have this goodness in you. And there are beings in the world that have this goodness and they've stabilized it. And then find like find a master or find a teacher, find a community that helps that turn on for you. 
but as a book, whatever, it's a choose your own adventure. So it, yeah. yeah, it's written for integralists and Buddhists and, and both people entering it newly and also people are seasoned and been around in the thick of it for a long time. Um, so yeah, choose your own adventure, find a piece of it that might help you if it's interesting and have fun exploring. Cool. And, um, yeah, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll, I'll put that link in the notes. Um, but yeah, Lama, Lama Pemadropa, thanks so much for your friendship, your wisdom, your beauty. Just really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I hope we can talk again soon. Yay. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate you. Thank you.